Nightfall, mid-December, the dark after a day of rain. On Cherry Street in Burlington, the tenements gleamed with candlelight, lamplight, their windows shuttered against the cold. Louisa LaCruz lived with Julia Brace Bennett at number 18, a tenement off Cherry Court. On December 11, 1899, the two women took supper in the basement with their neighbor, Agnes Willis. Agnes lived on the second floor. Her daughter was at the neighbor's for the evening, while her husband was at the barbershop working. Agnes had passed the afternoon with a young man named Gilbert Farmer, who joined the women at the supper table. Louisa and Julia had prepared a chicken, but the meat needed cutting, and Gilbert offered up his knife, a folding dirk with a long blade. Louisa had seen it before. On Battery Street one evening, she'd happened upon an argument between Agnes and Gilbert and glimpsed the knife in his hand, the light the steel flashed back from it. Nothing happened. Not then. Louisa intervened, Gilbert backed down, and a few days later she served up supper with his knife. The blade cut clean and easy, keen as a straight razor. Firelight glittered down its edge, like the sparks in his eyes across the table watching her, then looking at Agnes. Welcome to these dark mountains. This is the Cherry Court Murder. Eva Karasaw arrived at Cherry Court at around 8.15 p.m. A staircase off the courtyard led to the second-floor apartment her sister Agnes shared with husband Edward Willis and 11-year-old daughter Elfrida. Eva lived nearby and was often at her sister's. Earlier that evening, she passed by 18 Cherry Street and chanced to overhear a quarrel between her sister and Gilbert Farmer. They were outside, apparently and Agnes told Gilbert to leave her alone, to never come back. Now Eva mounted the steps to her sister's room and called ahead of her, receiving in response the clatter of footfalls from above, as of someone running for the back stairs. She let herself in. The Willis's apartment was divided into two rooms, with a small kitchen area inside the doorway that opened to a darkened living room, with the bedroom situated just beyond. The bedroom door was ajar, Eva noticed, an oil lamp burning inside. The apartment was quiet, empty save for sounds of rain, tapping on the roof and windows, mixing with snow as the temperatures dropped. Ag? Eva spoke the name to the silence, heard a moaning from the bedroom. Through the doorway, she glimpsed her sister's feet upon the floor, planted firmly on the boards as though she were sitting on the bed. She wasn't sitting, though. Eva entered the bedroom and found Agnes half on the mattress, with her feet on the floor and her throat slashed open. Blood was everywhere, 
It had soaked through Agnes's clothing into the blankets, then spilled onto the floorboards, pooling in the cracks. Eva fled outside. She screamed and the neighbors came running. It was too late for the doctor, but Eva's son went for the police, while someone ran to the barber shop on North Champlain Street to inform Agnes's husband. Edward Willis didn't believe it, said he had to see for himself. He hurried home to a neighborhood in uproar, and Agnes dead across the bed they'd shared, mired in blood with her face turned to one side, her eyes open. Edward's portrait hung opposite the bed. His wife had died looking at his face, or perhaps at the lithograph beside it, a framed copy of their marriage certificate. The Willis's wedding was in Bristol, but registered in Burlington, and the city's registry shows a marriage date of March 8, 1882. Edward's profession is listed there as Barber, while Agnes's maiden name is given as Alfreda A. Day. A note in parentheses reads C-O-L apostrophe D. Colored. Agnes and Edward were African American. They all were Louisa, Julia, Gilbert Farmer. In 1899, Burlington was home to slightly more than a hundred black residents, most living in the neighborhoods north of Cherry Street along North Champlain. Many were native Vermonters, as was Agnes Willis, who was born and raised in Bristol. Her great-grandfather, Amos Morocco, was a slave in Connecticut who'd gained his freedom and settled in Vermont with brothers Peter Freeman and Edward Shelton, and a sister named Lemon. The four siblings acquired a tract of land in Charlotte, where they prospered for a time before drifting away, disappearing, leaving a line of planted chestnut trees and the name Guinea Road. By 1850, the Moroccos had moved to Lincoln, along with granddaughter Angeline Freeman, who married farm laborer Alonzo Day. Amos Morocco died in 1855, and the family resettled in Bristol, with Amos's widow Rhoda, known as Aunt Morocco, keeping house. Angeline and Alonzo Day had three children, Eva, Arlie, and Alfreda, called Agnes, or Ag. Arlie was 15 when he succumbed to typhoid fever in 1876. Two years later, Eva Day married Floyd Briggs, with whom she went on to have a son, Harold, in 1881. The next year, Agnes wed Edward Willis and moved with him to Burlington, just as the situation in Bristol began to deteriorate. Agnes's father deserted her mother to marry another woman, while in 1884, Eva's husband Floyd was arrested on charges of assault with attempt to kill following an altercation at Angeline's house. He was ordered to pay a fine or to serve a short custodial sentence. And later that same year, Agnes's great-grandmother, Aunt Morocco, died at the age of 102. The news was reported statewide, prompting the landmark newspaper to quip, Who says Vermont is not a healthy state? Then Floyd died of blood poisoning, age 34, and Eva Briggs was left a widow with a five-year-old to clothe and feed. Angeline Day, her mother, was also without a husband or obvious means of support, and the women had little choice but to move on from Bristol. Like many others, they moved to Burlington, but opportunity eluded them, and the women resorted to sex work. 
During this period, Eva served multiple sentences in the House of Correction on charges of adultery and keeping a house of ill fame, while Angeline was arrested with her on at least two occasions. Eva also incurred numerous fines for intoxication. Possibly she was an alcoholic, though it's difficult to say for sure, as state prohibition laws were in effect and the city's minority neighborhoods were likely subject to over-policing. She drank, maybe, but she could hardly be blamed. Her situation was desperate enough, and her sisters, too. Agnes's daughter Edna was born in 1885, followed in 1888 by a second daughter, Elfrida, presumably named for her mother. But Edna died before her third birthday, and Agnes turned a drink. In the years after Edna's death, Agnes was arrested multiple times on charges of drunkenness or furnishing alcohol, culminating in a five-month stint in the House of Correction. Angeline Day died in 1897. The body was returned to Bristol to be buried with her son Arlie, but Eva and Agnes remained in Burlington. Eva Briggs remarried, becoming Eva Carasaw, but the sisters' relationship remained close, if also volatile, as evidenced by an 1894 incident in which Eva attacked Agnes with a stove poker. On a different occasion, Eva was fined $2 for attacking one man, then arrested after robbing a second man to pay the fine. Finally, there was the September 1899 party at Cherry Court that degenerated into violence. Police were called and Agnes and Eva were taken into custody, though they were both released without charge. Also present that night was a cousin of Agnes and Eva, a young woman named Fanny Farmer. Her older brother was in the House of Correction, serving six months after breaking into his sister-in-law's trunk. His name was Gilbert Farmer, and he'd be getting out soon. Gilbert was born in Charlotte to Gilbert and Paulina Farmer in 1873 or 74. Gilbert Sr. was a gardener by profession and was in this capacity employed by the mayor of Burlington prior to accepting a job as a janitor at the University of Vermont. He was working there when he contracted what was likely tuberculosis and died in July of 1889 after an illness of several months. His death meant substantial financial hardship, and probably for this reason, Gilbert Jr. forged his employer's signature on a $3.75 clothing repair. The forgery was discovered, and Gilbert was sent to the Virgins Reform School, where he spent at least nine months, during which time his mother Paulina married Daniel Prince of Burlington, an acquaintance of Edward Willis. Gilbert was released and returned to Burlington, only to be arrested again in January of 1892 after breaking into a neighbor's house with a skeleton key. For this crime, he was sentenced to two and a half years in the state prison, putting him back in Burlington by 1894, though it seems he stayed out of trouble, at least for a time, long enough anyway, for him to find work as a florist and to marry Alice May Edwards of Heinsberg in October 1898. Like Agnes, like Gilbert, 
Alice was a native Vermonter. Her father, Warren Edwards, was born and raised in the Black Settlement on Hinesburg Hill, later Lincoln Hill, as was Alice herself. Though the family moved to a farm at nearby Rhode Island Corner in 1891, Gilbert moved in with his wife's family, but the marriage proved short-lived. In April of 1899, Gilbert burglarized his sister-in-law Annie Farmer's trunk and stole one dollar and twenty-five cents. The theft was discovered in Burlington and reported to the police, who directed the sheriff's office to make an arrest. Gilbert was taken into custody in Hinesburg and transported to Burlington. He was found guilty in city court and received a fine of $5 plus $10.81 in costs, or around $500 in today's money. Gilbert didn't pay, couldn't, and was sentenced to six months in the House of Correction. This incident seems to have marked the end of Gilbert's marriage. He was released from the House of Correction in November of 1899 but he didn't return to Alice's family. Instead, he ended up in Burlington again, where he lodged with his stepfather on LaFountain Street, or perhaps with his brother Ernest on Oak Street. Gilbert was 28. Since his father's death in 1889, he had spent time in the state reform school, the state prison, and finally, the House of Correction. His photograph was displayed in the rogues gallery at the Burlington Police Department and he drifted about town with few prospects of employment and with nowhere else to go. Somehow he fell in with Agnes Willis, his cousin, eight years older, and the two were often seen together in November and December 1899. The nature of their relationship is unclear. Edward later accused Gilbert of tempting Agnes, suggesting a sexual relationship between them. This seems likely, if not quite a certainty. Perhaps Gilbert had pursued her, a married woman, only to be rejected, prompting the violent outburst witnessed by Louisa La Cruz on Battery Street. December 11th, 1899, dawned gray and chill, rain blowing in waves with the winds up Cherry Street. Agnes and Edward left home together and walked as far as the barber shop where they parted. Agnes continued on to a house on North Union Street where she worked as a scrub woman or cleaner. In the afternoon, she met up with Gilbert Farmer and returned with him to Cherry Court. They took supper in the basement of the tenement. A blade was needed to carve the chicken, and Gilbert offered Louisa La Cruz his clasp knife. But the mood turned sour. Agnes and Gilbert quarreled as they often did, and Gilbert showed his knife to Julia Brace Bennett saying he meant to use it that night. Julia warned him against it, told him he would be arrested, but he didn't care. He said he would use the knife just the same if he did go to jail. Then Agnes left, and Gilbert too. They had it out in the courtyard, and Eva Carasaw, passing by, heard Agnes tell her young cousin to leave her and never come back. Agnes returned inside and seated herself on the windowsill. She lingered a moment, as if to collect herself, before exiting to the courtyard where Gilbert was waiting for her. It was seven o'clock, or perhaps half past, and she must have invited him upstairs because a neighbor saw them together, climbing the steps to the Willis's rooms. 
they went inside. The door closed behind them, and Agnes never came out. Eva Karasaw's son Harold entered the Burlington police station and spoke with Chief L.J. Smith. Agnes Willis was dead, he said, murdered. Quite by chance, the city's mayor, Robert Roberts, was also present at the station. He might have recognized Agnes's name, or perhaps was merely curious, because he accompanied Chief Smith to Cherry Court. Half past eight now still raining, and friends and neighbors crowded the halls and staircases at 18 Cherry. Edward Willis paced in the courtyard, while his daughter Elfrida remained in the living room of their apartment. From the Burlington Free Press. The one child of Mr. and Mrs. Willis, a pretty little colored girl only 11 years old, remained in the house during the examination of the rooms and body and its removal. She sat in the arms of some of the women present and sobbed out her grief, and during a few moments, when no one gave her attention, seated herself upon the stove in which there was no fire. Police telephoned the city's health officer, H.R. Watkins, who arrived at Cherry Court and pushed past the onlookers to reach the Willis' bedroom. Chief Smith and Mayor Roberts remained for the examination assisting Dr. Watkins as he rolled Agnes onto her side. She had been dead for less than an hour. Her eyes were open, shining with a lifelike brightness, and she wasn't yet cold. Watkins confirmed the cause of death as a single wound to the left side of the throat, exactly six inches in length. The trachea was intact, but the killer had sliced through the jugular. She would have died quickly, within two minutes. An undertaker arrived. He cut away Agnes's sodden skirts and waist and washed the blood from her body before clothing her in white, ready for burial. Coffin and wagon waited in the street below. The funeral was to be at 21 South Champlain, Eva Carasaw's house. Agnes's sister had already spoken with investigators. She told them of the argument she overheard and described her 8.15 arrival at 18 Cherry Street, the din of footsteps pounding toward the back stair. Police followed this up, and determined a man had jumped from the rear staircase to the roof of an adjoining shed before leaping from there to the ground. Near the shed, they discovered fresh footprints as well as blood-smeared wrapping paper, suggesting the killer paused to clean his knife before fleeing on foot toward Battery Street. Gilbert Farmer was immediately suspected. Eva Carasaw gave his name to authorities, while Julia Brace Bennett recounted the threats he had made earlier in the evening. Edward Willis likewise had no doubt who was responsible. From the Burlington Free Press. His grief found little expression in words. Once or twice, he uttered threats and curses upon the head of Farmer, and charged him with having tried to tempt his wife. He also said that he knew Farmer killed his wife, and that he believed he did it because he was jealous of her. 
three police officers proceeded to Daniel Prince's LaFountain Street residence. Gilbert was out, but they spoke with Paulina Prince, who claimed her son had missed supper, that she hadn't seen him since three o'clock. Gilbert's brother lived on Oak Street. The officers continued to his house, where they found Gilbert sitting with his brother's family. His clothes appeared clean, but he was visibly agitated, sweating profusely, and he didn't have his clasp knife with him. Upon questioning, he said he'd left it in a drawer at his mother's house. He was taken into custody and placed in the county jail. The next day, December 12th, was a Tuesday. Colder now, temperatures in the 30s. News of the crime dominated the papers, with the free press describing Agnes's murder as the most ghastly crime which has occurred in this city in many years. In the morning, police searched the homes of Daniel Prince and Ernest Farmer. At the Prince house, they found a dull jackknife in Paulina's bureau drawer, much as Gilbert had indicated, but Louisa LaCruz didn't recognize it, said it wasn't the knife that Gilbert usually carried. Police also discovered a pair of men's wraps or leggings that Gilbert was known to have worn earlier in the day, and which he had removed upon reaching his brother's house. The leggings appeared to be mostly clean, but for a lone spot of blood, no larger than a thumbnail. From this evidence, investigators formulated a theory of the crime. Agnes was tall and strong. They were of the opinion that Gilbert had surprised her, cutting her throat while standing behind her to avoid blood spatter. At this stage, the case against Gilbert Farmer was compelling, if not conclusive. Authorities questioned the young man, who admitted he was at Cherry Court with Agnes, though he claimed he'd left by 8 o'clock. The murder weapon, too, was missing, but police spoke with a boarder on the Fountain Street, who remembered seeing Gilbert outside his mother's house on the evening of the 11th. His mother denied it. Paulina Prince held out under questioning for a day or more, until the evening of Wednesday the 13th, when Chief Smith called at LaFountain Street in the company of Sheriff Thomas Reeves. In Reeves' words. I told Paulina she could give us the knife, or tell us where it was, or I would bring her down to jail, inasmuch as she had told so many lies about the crime, and that she could produce the knife, or put on her things, and come with me. She caved, told them everything. Yes, Gilbert had been there on the 11th, and had begged her to hide the knife before running north toward Oak Street. The blade was bloody, Paulina recalled and she'd placed the knife in a pail and buried it beneath an outbuilding. Show us, Reeves said, and she did. Early the next morning, Sheriff Reeves visited Gilbert in his jail cell. Well, he said, we found the knife, Gibby. Gilbert had slept badly, woken early, hadn't had his breakfast. He held his head in his hands, perhaps, or rose and paced the cell before coming to a decision. He confessed. He told Reeves he had killed Agnes, but insisted it was an accident. Reeves asked, How could you cut Ag Willis's throat and not have a fight with her? Knowing her as well as I do, I think she could handle you. My idea is that you must have come up behind her to do it the way you did. I didn't come up behind her, said the murderer. 
she was almost in front of me. The farmer, as he said this, raised his right hand to his throat and made a quick downward movement in imitation of his stroke at the woman, striking as if almost in front of the imaginary object and slightly downward. Were you having any trouble? asked the sheriff. We were fooling, replied Farmer. Did she think you were going to injure her? I don't think she did, was the reply. Reeves left Gilbert in his cell, had business to attend to in Colchester. In the afternoon, he returned to the jail and asked the young man to change out of his clothes. He examined Gilbert's trousers, turning out the pockets to reveal bloodstains on the inner lining where the young man carried his knife. Reeves produced a pair of shears, intending to remove the pocket as evidence, and Gilbert asked if he intended to destroy all of his clothes. The young man had only one other suit, it transpired, and it was at the cleaners. His brother should have picked it up on the 11th, but didn't, and for this reason, presumably, Gilbert was still wearing his blood-stained clothes at the time of his arrest. To Reeves, this strongly indicated premeditation, that Gilbert had planned to murder Agnes prior to skipping town, wearing different clothes to disguise his identity. The sheriff questioned him again, but Gilbert's story had changed, kept changing. Now he claimed Agnes had killed herself. She'd taken his knife, he said, slashed her own throat. He panicked, pocketed the knife, and ran. This account was dismissed as unlikely, and authorities moved to prosecute. A hearing scheduled for January was delayed, and then cancelled on account of the judge's illness, and Gilbert remained in jail until September of 1900, when a grand jury returned an indictment for first-degree murder. Police had witnesses, blood evidence, a murder weapon. Gilbert's case was hopeless, or near enough to it. He must have realized this, because he pled guilty to murder in the second degree to avoid the death penalty. There was no trial. A judge sentenced Gilbert to life in the state prison, and Sheriff Reeves traveled with him to Windsor. Edward Willis was already there. Agnes's husband had been arrested for intoxication, but perjured himself in court, resulting in a sentence of no less than one year in the state prison. That was in April of 1900. Gilbert arrived at Windsor in October, and the two men were likely to have encountered one another, though no record survives of such a meeting. Edward was out by 1901. He moved to Rutland, and then to Wallingford, where he ran a barber shop from his house and worked at the nearby railway depot, loading the milk train to Boston. His house was just over the tracks from the depot, and it was his habit to walk there whenever a train was expected. Around noon on April 24, 1910, Edward heard the whistle and crossed the tracks. Some accounts suggest he was drunk, but it's also possible he simply misjudged the distance to the depot or the speed at which the train was traveling, because it smashed him with its cowcatcher and sent him flying. He recovered consciousness, but his internal injuries were extensive, and he died just three days later. His body was sent to 21 South Champlain Street in Burlington, where John and Eva Carasaw still lived, along with Edward's daughter, Elfrida. 
In 1910, Elfrida was 22 and unmarried, mother to a two-year-old son and heavily pregnant besides. Despite her condition, she would have helped to lay out her father's body, perhaps in the same room where Agnes's funeral had taken place in 1899, and where they would hold Eva's funeral, just one year later, when she died after a stroke. Elfrida was alone at 23. Her parents were dead, as was the woman who had raised her from age 11, and she was left with two young children to support. Like Eva before her, she fell into sex work and was arrested multiple times in 1914 and 1915, for which she eventually received a sentence of one to three years in the House of Correction. After her release, she married in 1917 and moved to New York, 100 years or more since her great-great-grandfather had first settled in Charlotte. Gilbert Farmer left Vermont too. In 1923, he was pardoned and released after 23 years and moved to Claremont, New Hampshire, where he married a local woman. The 1930 census records his profession as gardener, the same as his father. He's buried in Claremont. Agnes Willis is interred in the free ground at Burlington's Lakeview Cemetery. Her daughter Edna lies nearby, as does her husband. Agnes and Edward are buried without headstones in lots 254 and 343, respectively. In death, they have become mere numbers, recalling the generations of black farmers who lived and died in the Champlain Valley, who worked the land and melted away. Cherry Court is a parking lot now, deserted tonight as the hours pass and the rain turns to snow. The pavement shimmers with a lifelike brightness, and Agnes Willis is climbing the stairs to a room that no longer exists. Gilbert follows her in. Thirty minutes, an hour. They talk until they're hoarse and there's nothing left to say. Agnes is tired, has work in the morning. She retreats to the bedroom, but Gilbert won't leave her alone. He's shaking, fumbling at his pockets as she lights the oil lamp adjusts the wick. Their outlines flicker across the curtain, a shadow play in which the two stand face to face, unmoving, until he steps toward her, until she turns around. Thank you for listening to These Dark Mountains. Today's episode was sourced primarily from public records and from newspapers of the period. Other resources consulted include Discovering Black Vermont by Elise Guyette, published in 2010 by the University Press of New England, as well as academic papers by Harvey Amani Whitfield and Jane Williamson that appeared in the Journal of Vermont History in 2007 and 2010, respectively. Complete citations appear in the show notes. Information concerning plot numbers at Lakeview Cemetery was obtained from findagrave.com. Our music and theme are by John Mills. Episode transcripts can be found at our website, thesedarkmountains.com.